Welcome to the Team Health Podcast Program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing new and effective management of opioids, both on a local and a system-wide basis. As you all know, opioids are responsible for greater than 100,000 deaths annually, and throughout the pandemic, opioid overdoses have increased by almost 30%. And yet now our hands are no longer tied. We have effective treatment regimens, some including buprenorphine that are making an immediate difference. And yet these modalities are underutilized. Just how do we convince our colleagues to use the most effective treatments? What are the levers that we can use to work with teams and systems that can be started immediately and consistently help our patients. To discuss these programs is our guest speaker, the Honorable Nathan Schlicker, MD, JD, MBA, and on. Uh, Why Honorable Dr. Schlicker, an emergency physician who he was a senator in the state of Washington. He was the president of Washington ASAP, His daytime job is Regional Medical Director of Quality Assurance and Associate Director of Litigation Support for Team Health. Nathan is currently the physician lead of Washington State's Better Prescribing, Better Treatment Program, a successful collaborative program to promote safe opioids prescribing techniques. Hello, Nathan, and welcome. Thanks so much, Rob. appreciate being here and look forward to an exciting conversation about a critically important topic. And so do I. So let's start with context. Would you provide us with the, just briefly, the old school approach, um, blame the patient and where that got us? Well, I think the old school approach is not only blame the patient, blame the doctor. You know, it was the challenge that our patients, you know, were just abusing drugs, that they were always the source of it, rather than recognizing that so many patients get their first start on opioids with a legal and valid prescription, uh, and then trip down into tolerance and eventually into addiction, the maladaptive behavior that goes with increasing and consistent use of opioids. So when we realize that as a, as a society, then society said, well, fine, it's all the doctor's fault. And we'll just make the rules up to make sure that they don't do anything and prescribe anything, and we will appropriately punish them. And so the old school world of saying, let's blame and shame, let's go after the bad apples. After we've gone through this roller coaster of 20 years of pain is the fifth vital sign that shall not exist to you shall not prescribe opioids and let's merge those two together. Now we've gotten to this point where hopefully we can help do education on both sides that we have patients that are suffering pain, some that are suffering addiction, that both need treatment with reasonable prescribing in both those instances. And so that's what we've been working to tackle here in Washington State uh, for the last couple of years with a decent amount of success. That's great. And uh, certainly the old methods, methods were not successful, but it hasn't been an easy process to come up with new Regimen. So as we began to treat opioid use as a medical problem, you've described some positive changes, but even these transitional practice modifications still made it difficult for patients to get effective, consistent treatment. Can you tell us about that? Well, I think one of the challenges that we saw, and I think we continue to see in society, is that as more rules by government came in, 
they basically were there as a barrier to care. And the idea was if we put up enough walls, then we won't have as many opioids in the community. And we see practice after practice, you know, saying, well, we don't prescribe chronic pain medications. We don't do long-term treatment. And that's not an effective way to do medicine. There are patients that need opioids. We see a lot of rules around, as you mentioned, buprenorphine prescribing uh, that prevent people from getting care and delivering care. You need a, a waiver, you need an X license. And so all of these types of issues that stood as barriers to care didn't help solve the problem, arguably didn't take care of the outliers in prescribing, and it didn't help to increase access to needed care or to needed treatment of opioid use disease, uh, disorder. So in the end, you know, what we said was, let's start with a more logical approach. Physicians are educated individuals that respond to data. So let's look at the data, let's look at where the prescribing patterns are, and let's begin to have a process that puts in place not barriers, but consistent education, consistent feedback. And so our Better Prescribing, Better Treatment program emphasized three things. One, it said we're going to put in place a, a pill guideline, not a limit, not a hard cap, but that to go above that limit uh, or that guideline, you needed to have what's called an expedited prior authorization, which in this case was simply writing the word exempt on the prescription. Not a big barrier, but just a moment to stop and think. And if you don't, pharmacist reaches out to you. Second thing we said was we're going to give data to our prescribers, and we'll dive more into that. And the third thing you know, that we said was that buprenorphine needs to be a part of the conversation for those suffering from addiction, with the idea that by giving reasonable pill guidelines, limitations to clinicians that they can hold on to working with patients, uh, then we can have safe prescribing out the door uh, and try to reduce that risk of addiction. Because we do know from the data that the longer that initial prescription you get, the more likely you are to be on opioids long-term. So yeah, if you look at the data, if you're given a month's supply of opioids, your likelihood of still being on opioids a year later is 25%. And even three years out, it's around you know 10 to 12%, depending upon the data. So if we can really target this initial prescribing and really work to say, let's make sure we're doing everything we can to get people off opioids for initial acute pain, then we're going to help reduce the long-term dependence and tolerance and addiction down the road and reduce the number of opioids that are in our community. So Nathan, I, I know you to be a very compelling individual. You're articulate, you're thoughtful, quite intelligent. And yet you are only one person. Um, so you must have confronted multiple both political and human barriers uh, because, you know, I, there are clinicians out there who believe in what they're doing. How did, how, what did you have to confront? How did you begin to overcome some of those things? Well, I always say it's easy to, you know, lead when you've got an enemy uh, that's willing to start the war uh, and not an enemy, uh, to be fair. Uh, but we had, uh, you know, been dealing with the state Medicaid system uh, for a number of years and the ERs for emergencies when they initially said, you know, ER doctors are bad doctors and we don't want to pay them. We don't want them to treat patients, basically, and, and came after us. And we worked with the CMO of the state Medicaid, came up with a better compromise and solution, including tackling opioids. And as the new CMO came in, uh, they wanted to tackle opioids statewide. And they said, well, we're just going to make this easy. We're going to make government uh, require prior authorization for every opioid prescription. 
and so as an ER doc, I said, well, what happens when somebody, you know, has a, a terrible fracture Thanksgiving, you know, day at, you know, 6 p.m.? Who are they supposed to call to get prior authorized on a you know, four-day weekend? Well, we'll work those issues out on the back end. I said, well, wait a minute. This makes no sense. We're putting barriers in front of people. We've, we've worked together collaboratively in the past. We did ERs for emergencies. Let's work together again. You know, we, we laid the foundations. We put guidelines in place. We gave people data. We saw tremendous change. Let us do this for everyone else. And at the time I was with the State Medical Association, uh, I think Secretary Treasurer, one of the executives, and was meeting with the WCMA in that capacity on behalf of the House of Medicine this time, rather than on behalf of Washington ASEP. And so we said, let, let's do this smartly again. Let's work together. And the beauty of you know, dealing with regulators, uh, which the state CMOs and Medicaid are, is that they're not elected officials. Uh, they do generally have expertise in the area that you are talking to them about. <laughs> and you, know, you can have a real honest conversation about the science, about the medicine, and dive in and say, let's tackle this. And they'll be willing to go with you more uh, on those journeys, I think, especially if you have a relationship. And so we leverage that. We also, you know, maybe, maybe we're a little threatening and said, hey, we sued you once last time when you did something crazy. Don't make us do it again. But realistically, we said, let's work together and tackle this. And you know, they were skeptical at first a little bit, but we believe we could do it. But the bigger challenge was on convincing organizations to do it. Because now we were asking organizations to voluntarily enroll in this for a big bat of extra paperwork that the systems really didn't see a risk to. In contrast, ER is for emergencies where we asked them all to sign up to avoid getting a massive pay cut. That was easy. Now we're saying we want to do better medicine and compare your organizations to each other on something that all of you say is not a problem for you and it's the other guy. Uh, so that was a little bit of a heavier lift, but uh, we had a number of early movers that kind of helped kick the ball off. And one of our big holdouts, uh, I remember meeting with one of their senior leaders and uh, saying, well, we've got everybody else kind of in the boat. You guys are kind of the last ones. And uh, they were a little defensive, like, well, we're doing our own thing. We've got our own data. I said, well, you know, every study needs a control. You can just do the control with which we measure our success against. <laughs> they decided to join. So, you know, sometimes it is relationships. Sometimes it's political pressure. Sometimes it's, you know, <laughs> subtle threats. You know, but you get there in the end. And then once we got to that point and really got it off and running, all the other ones came along. And uh, now the, the challenge is, you know, we, we enroll big systems, you know, health systems, University of Washington Health System, Providence, you know, St. Joseph's Health System, but sometimes our individual docs in the community that are not affiliated with the system uh, are sitting there saying, well, wait, we want to join too, or the group of 10 docs. And so now we've been working to actually pick back up kind of that middle-sized practice, which is exciting to see it take off. So I like the way you've described it. It's sort of my practice is fine. Just fix your own problems. It's, it reminds me of the person in a 70 mile an hour uh, on a 70 mile an hour road who drives 80 and says, this is fine, but gets angry at somebody who's driving 90 or driving 70 because my practice is fine, fix yours. And I, I suppose the, uh, as you worked with systems, I'm amazed that you were able to uh, bring them on, but it sounds like you did that in part by showing data. Well, doctors are 
very data driven. So again, if you want to tell me that I needed to fix my practice, you'd have to compare me and show me um, something that is better. How do you do that? Well, you nailed it there. You have to make sure that you're showing them data. You also have to make sure the data is fair. I think that is the, the big pieces of what we've done is we've really focused on the data has to be fair and that we're willing to have the kind of bi-directional conversation that if you reach out to me and say, you've got an error in your data, we'll walk through it and we'll look at the logic and we'll see if we can you know, tweak the program to make sure that it is accurate and fair. Because at the end of the day, I think one of the challenges every clinician has is, you know, we're dealing with these small end events on some of the national metrics. We're dealing with a rigid construct, you know, sepsis is an example, uh, with over 200 pages of guidelines and nuances about where you put the comma in a sentence that doesn't have anything to do with clinical practice. And so people are like, you know, I, I think fairly a lot of clinicians, the first answer they have is any data that says I'm bad is bullshit and they want to fight you know, and they want to have that conversation. And so I, one of the things I, I did was I said, look, I'll have my name on the bottom of all of this with my email so people can do it, which sounds a little crazy when you realize we're reaching out to 20,000 clinicians every quarter. Uh, and it was initially to get you know, 100 plus emails a quarter and, and I'd respond to all of them. Uh, and the, the rationale was you know, we wanted to make sure that it was individualized to you and that it was fair and that you understood the measure and you understood how you could win. And so a lot of times they get back, well, this isn't fair. I only do chronic pain. I only do hospice care. I only do really bad orthopedic trauma. Yeah, <laughs> I only do hip replacements. I responded to one of the, the orthopods uh, this month uh, who was like, well, I, I only do uh, uh, hip replacements and I only give them 50 Percocet or, or 40 Percocet and 40 Tramadol. And I'm like, Okay, and he's like, so how am I high? And I was like, well, we look at it on a five MED basis. You know, so technically you know, you're giving out 60 doses in both of those. And I'm like, plus that doesn't make a ton of sense prescribing clinically, but you know, we kind of walked through it and talked about it. And so we said, you know, if you want to continue to prescribe oxycodone, it would be 28 doses at 7.5 MEDs uh, per dose. And he writes back and like, oh, uh, that's a little stingy, you know, I think. And I then sent him the Michigan Open data. And I said, well, actually, Michigan Open would advocate it can be anywhere from 10 to 30 for total hip replacements. And he writes back, well, I guess it's worth giving it a try. You know, <laughs> and so that's kind of that change of like, we can invite the conversation with the data, have a conversation about the details of the data, how you got there, then talk about the clinical practice, give you resources and give it a whirl by making sure that it's fair and it's bi-directional and it's non-judgmental. And so if, you know, occasionally I'll get emails from people saying, well, I do hospice. All my prescriptions for hospice. And that's fine. You know, hospice are exempt. We're doing big data. Obviously we can't see that in the big data because it's just prescribing data. So it, don't worry about it. This is educational. It's not punitive. And that's why we're running the program as physicians, not the state as the regulator. So have faith that this is about data and about better care. But by the way, these are flagging because it's the cancer patient's first prescription for opioids. They've never been on opioids before within the last 105 days. So if you're writing their first prescription, even if they're going to die, there are still all the other complications that go along with opioids, overdose, extras in the house, 
you know, constipation, you know, the dreaded complication for everyone. Uh, so, you know, the rules kind of still do apply in terms of just good clinical practice, even if the rules don't apply as and you've got to abide by the 42 and 18 guidelines. And so we have those conversations and we've seen even hospice prescribing adjust. And, you know, one of my dear friends is a hospice CMO. And he said, you know, I used to be on your bad list. And I was like, oh, sorry. You know, and he, he wrote back and goes, well, I, I said, you know, our take-home pack was this huge amount of opioids that most people went home with and didn't ever use. So we tried it and we adjusted that first take-home pack for when you joined hospice and we didn't have a problem. I said, great. And he's like, yeah. He goes, I wonder how much of those old prescriptions are still out there in the community. I said, exactly. Because that's where kids are getting access to opioids. It's not the corner drug dealer. It's not the shadowy narcos figure on a TV show. It's grandma's medicine cabinet. You know, the worst place in the world to store opioids is in your bathroom. Where does grandma store it? In her bathroom. You know, that's just life. And so we said, let's tackle this from all these facets. Have this conversation. Make it individualized. Compare you to your group, to your peers, to your organization, and then educate and have it as a, a professional conversation. And it's been amazingly effective to do that. And, you know, some people still get angry, but most times even the most angry initial email ends with a thank you by the time we've done this circular loop. So uh, I'm encouraged. I have hope. It sounds like you have adopted multiple processes, an open conversation, allowing variations or, or accepting variations that make reasonable sense. You've provided fair and trusted data. People are accepting your data, uh, resources, and you've been personally available. Must be pretty taxing. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So, so what, what's happened? What's the compliance um, now? And of the things we just discussed, are there a couple that you think are, are, are the difference makers? You know, I think the, the data is really exciting. You know, when we started the program, and this is what I tell regulators as well, is when we started the program, 78% of prescriptions statewide were compliant with the, the limit, which in our state is 18 doses for kids defined as those under 21, 42 for adults, those defined as 21 and above. And that's for in theory three and seven days respectively. So, uh, you know, 78% of prescriptions were compliant when we started the program. So with that in mind, I say, you know, doctors are doing a good job. First of all, it's not the end of the world because we also know in any big data program, the right answer is not 100%. And so we worked on it and by putting that guideline in place, by having the real-time circling feedback, you know, we've seen over the course of the years that that compliance has gone up to about 94, uh, 95%. And in some of the best systems, you know, maybe pushing 96. But at the end of the day, we also know that it shouldn't be 100%. And so that's not the right answer. So I always tell regulators or, or legislators, I think 95, 96% is probably where we want to be uh, overall, maybe a little higher than that, but not much because at the end of the day, we can't see who's hospice. We can't see who is the large polytrauma patient who's going to be on long-term opioids and was in the hospital for a month. So the idea, well, we'll write them for a week first and then refill it in a week is kind of silly. So, you know, there are reasons why we shouldn't be 100%, uh, but we've made significant progress 
you know, in closing that gap. And really the other piece is reducing the variation. And so that's, you know, how we judge it. And so one of the things when we do the data is we not only make sure that it's fair in the sense of we, we cut everything out that we can that, that clearly is a different problem than the one we're studying. So when we do the, the data, you know, we're focused on acute opioid prescribing. Those people who are naive have not had an opioid within the last 105 days. And so one of the things we'll do to, to make it as fair as we can is we will, you know, look at the data and clean it up and pull out people that are not, not accurate. But we also recognize that there is variation in specialty and practice. And so we don't judge you based upon, you know, that 95% or whatever for your for the entire state, we say by specialty, what's the average percentage and what's the standard deviation? And then by looking at that, we then say, okay, are you more than one standard deviation out of that range? If you are, then that's an outlier that gets a slightly different message. And then if you're within one SD, we say, hey, you're within the average of your peers. And if you're below that, we say, you know, you're one of the, you know, strongest prescribers in the state. And what we see if that is a 90% of physicians, again, and clinicians, because we do include other licensing types, uh, are compliant or, or with the guidelines uh, in, within their specialty. But one of the interesting things is that, you know, we said we also want you to be able to know who you can speak with in your practice. If you don't want to reach out to me, some random guy uh, that's been around, but, you know, still some random guy that's not in your health system. So we give them the comparative table for their practice and their peers so they can learn from each other as well. My orthopod, you know, he chose to reach out to me, but he could have reached out to one of his partners who had better opioid prescribing because he could see their numbers and say, oh, wow, you know, Jane Smith is doing the same surgeries I am, but she's 100% compliant. What's going on? Hey, Jane, did you get this report? What, what are you doing that I'm not doing? What, what's your standard take-home plan? You know, and be able to have that conversation and have that expertise, not from somebody far away, but somebody across the hall. Uh, and then to be able to have that peer-to-peer -peer conversation. At the end of the day, it's about what they think they can do or need to do or should do for their practice. All of this is education. We, there is no government regulator in the background going after people's licenses based upon our data. There's no threat of get this number in line. In fact, one of the things we make very clear to the CMOs is that this is not data that you should use for a ranking or a punishment of your people. This is data that's the opening of a conversation. Uh, if you see somebody that's a high prescriber, then sit down and look at what their practice is and see if that makes sense. It, it may. They may be listed as an orthopod, but in fact, be doing hospice and palliative medicine. Uh, they might be in the wrong bucket. You know, those types of things happen. So let's let's open a conversation and keep this always on the focus of education and quality improvement, nothing punitive. And we've had decent success with that of making sure that large systems don't use this as a club uh, now for the last you know, almost 15 years, dating back to the ERs for emergencies. We said, you know, at the end, we want to make sure that this is focused on quality improvement because that's how we're going to get people in the boat and go on this journey with us. We make it punitive and make them walk the plank. They're going to be out and it's not going to be good for us as clinicians. It's not going to be good for the patients who are not getting the right treatment, either too much or too little opioids. 
it's not going to be right for the system as we try to make you know better healthcare. So I like what you've described and to continue with the metaphor, you allow people to be captains of their own boat rather than oars men and women who uh, are told to do something and very impressive. So just thinking about what you said, 78 to 94, five, six of the outliers, you've had a 70 to almost 80% improvement so that they're uh, of non-outliers. And what's particularly fascinating to me is, uh, and nobody wants to be last, uh, particularly among their colleagues. And so you allow them to self-direct, which is the ideal for improvement. Uh, oh, Nathan, you're doing so much a better job. Oh, I, I don't want to be the last on our list of, of clinicians. I think that's fantastic. So I know that you've developed a lot of the conceptual framework uh, of this program, the data dive implementation, and critically important, the ongoing feedback related to the program. It's Washington State. And there are other states that have programs. What's the future of these kinds of programs? I hope these are the kind of things that we can do on a, a state level that give people meaning and purpose uh, to get, make them see that we as, as medicine are, are doing a great job and we're improving where we can, we're doing it fairly. Uh, and that it's a foundation for other work, uh, either in other states that are, are looking to do something that partners in that public private space where we can work together to do better medicine, not with a club, but with a, an incentive. I, the second part of it, I hope, is that I hope it's a foundation for us here in Washington to be able to you know, continue to do these types of quality programs that reach across systems, that reach across specialties, so that we can continue to move the needle on other important issues. And we're looking forward to, to tackling, hopefully, co-prescribing and benzodiazepines. I think one can imagine that there's a conversation down the road that's going to be had around uh, amphetamine substances uh, and the increase in prescribing uh, in kids and even adults. Uh, so there's a lot of room for growth here in the SUD kind of arena, uh, but there is also room for growth in other quality measures, uh, whether that's you know uh, prescribing data about who does uh, use the most generics versus uh, you know uh, trade name uh, medications first generations versus uh, other medications. So I, I think there's an amazing opportunity for you know, the work of big data with you know, bi-directional communication uh, and education rather than punishment uh, that I'm, I'm hopeful for the future that you know, this is what we want when we talk about doing system-wide quality improvement. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity here in Washington, but in other states as well to tackle these same types of issues. Well, this is fantastic, inspiring. It's more than hopeful. It's helpful, and it's making a difference. Uh, what what more can we do? And particularly in a problem that, as we look back, has become the bane of some uh, clinicians' existences and very dangerous uh, for uh, the patients. So, thank you so much for for being uh, a guest. And as we say true expert on this program. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, my friend, and thanks for covering it and all you're doing to take education to the masses. You betcha. 
I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for other topics, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org.